Good morning. Megan spoke with the children about sort of the creation that is out there. I'm going to be speaking to the particular part of God's creation that is the human part of God's creation. Uh, I watched the movie on Netflix this past week called To All the Boys I've Loved Before. Yes. <laughs> Agree. It totally lived up to the hype that I'd heard on social media. It's about a young woman named Laura Jean, who's a high school junior, and she has a secret box filled with letters that she's written to each of the boys that she has loved throughout middle and high school. They contain these five letters. They contain all her feelings and longings and everything she loves about each of the boys in question. And then they're secreted away in a box until a scheming little sister sends them to the boys. I know! (laughs) And then Lara Jean has to sort out how she feels about the boys now. And of course... In the end, there's only one boy. And this is everything that a good romantic comedy should be. There's romance, there's a love triangle, there's hijinks, there's teen onks. Oh, so much teen onks. (laughs) And it is very much of its genre in that way. But it also offers a whole bunch of things that you do not usually see very much in romantic comedies. There's an Asian lead, Asian-American lead, Uh, A girl whose agency and voice is always at the fore. A young woman who decides when and how she wants to be with a boy. There's even a contract involved. And there's a happy ending that doesn't involve a makeover. I would not go so far as to say that the Song of Songs is the To All the Boys I've Loved Before of its time. But it is, in fact, very much of its genre in Near Eastern love poetry, the Song of Songs. In fact, there are parts when you read through the Song of Songs which could be mistaken for poets like Hafiz or Rumi, who writes lines like, I searched for him with a thousand hands. He stretched out his arms to me and clutched my feet. That's Rumi. And there's a lot of searching and finding in the Song of Songs. The Song of Songs definitely is doing something different than the rest of the Bible in the way it treats women's voices, women's agency, and for sure, women's desire. Megan really did a great job of making us sigh with longing when she read The voice of my beloved, look, he comes, leaping upon the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing in the windows. There is raw admiration And that's a relatively tame part of the book, of the Song of Songs, compared to things like, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruit, if you know what I mean. Or later in the book, 
her description of her beloved who is all radiant and, and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000, his head like finest gold, his locks wavy black as a raven, his eyes like doves beside still water, and she goes on down the man's body describing his parts. This is a desire and a sensuality heard in a woman's voice entirely absent from the rest of the Bible. That it is this desire read in first person in a woman's voice. Even books named for women in the Bible are still mostly a part of the, of the narrative because of the sons they bear or don't bear, because of the way their bodies are a temptation or a tool or something primary to the men in the story, usefulness or progeny or temptation. And in fact, it's a wonder that the Song of Songs exists in the Bible at all. God is not mentioned at all. Uh, And in the one other book in which that is true, the book of Esther, uh, God is always present sort of under the surface in the name, in talking about the rituals and the prayers or the religious rites that are happening in that book. So what have especially male readers of the Bible done for most of the history of Song of Songs? with this raw desire. Uh, For one, they've ascribed it to Solomon, to a man. Actually, authorship is not clear. Though it's called the Song of Solomon, likely that is because it is written in the style of the poetry of Solomon's court. Maybe by a woman. Don't quote me on that one. But more to the point, theologians and writers and preachers over these many thousands of years have explained away the Song of Songs as an allegory or metaphor for God's love of Israel or Christ's love for the church. And Anabaptists have been no exception in this. Menno, our namesake Menno Simons, compared Christ to the bridegroom, the male lover in this text, in these conversations, saying... In an echo of the Song of Songs, lover, arise, make haste, adorn yourself, beautify yourself, extol and praise him who has created you and called you to such a high honor through the word of his grace. So that's Menno Simons. And Dirk Phillips, another of our Anabaptist forebears, sees in the blossoming of spring that we hear in this passage in particular that Megan read, sees in that blossoming of spring a comparison not to blossoming love and the beauty of love, but to the newness of grace in Jesus. He contrasts this with law and punishment. The branches on the vine of Jesus Christ, Philip says, gets buds and gives the sweet fragrance of life through the power of Christ that is in them. And indeed, happened at the time of the first apostolic churches and still happens daily at the present time among all believers. But even if we don't understand necessarily the analogies and the comparisons of things like teeth to sheep or eyes to doves, these were analogies that made sense to the lovers in the Song of Songs as beautiful and important. It is a book that is straight up about desire and longing and for wanting to be with each other. And I 
I am constantly annoyed by Christians who read Christ into the Hebrew Bible, but I'm also a little perplexed when that is possible with the Song of Songs. Jesus loves me, this I know, but I do not think I want Jesus to love me like that. (laughs) This talk of kisses and beautiful necks strung with jewels, the longing for a lover's embrace, it makes a lot of us squirm. All of this body stuff, I mean, not me. I literally have a plastic bin full of erotic toys and prophylactics in the youth room that I use for teaching our whole lives. And any high school youth in this congregation can tell you that I do not shy away from questions about bodies, from awkward questions about whatever. That's what the box is for, those awkward questions that we can't say out loud. But knowing that other people feel a little bit squirmy does give me a little bit pause about bringing this to the pulpit. And it's why, as Megan says, we often save passages from the Song of Songs for weddings. We place this squirmy stuff safely in the context of marriage to sanitize it and make it more palatable. And it's beautiful poetry for weddings. Just a couple of months ago, we used the Song of Songs and the wedding I officiated for Rebecca and Dylan Jenkins. But the Song of Songs is a conversation between two lovers, and there is no mention of marriage, and it is intentionally ambiguous about whether or not the relationship is consummated. Not only is there not a marriage, but the woman has an equal, if not greater, voice in this back-and-forth dialogue. And the desire is explicit, even if the comparisons sort of raise our eyebrows. This passage, where a man is compared to a gazelle, a stag, that's sort of like, we can kind of understand that, it's like being a stallion, maybe. But like a belly like a heap of wheat. Can't quite get there. The comparisons may not be obvious to us, but the thirst of these two for each other is completely clear. These are thirsty passages. And it is slightly shocking, even today. Our culture is pretty comfortable making women the object of desire. Comfortable with women's bodies being on display, with using women's bodies for currency or for sales. You just have to drive down Lake City Way and glance up at the billboard on top of Rick's, for an example, in light. But we are much less comfortable with women's expressions of desire. It seems to me that this is not a scientific study, but an observation on my part that women's desire is often played for laughs. I'm doing it. For sure, when I was in college, Bible college, no less, my friend Carrie did a very funny bit where she would read the Song of Songs with a low German accent. And I mean, when you read, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. <laughs> like a Russian Mennonite grandma. Yeah, Jonathan knows what I'm talking about. Like a Russian Mennonite grandma. 
check, killed every time. <laughs> it is extremely common for men to make women an object of thirst, but women are rarely given this opportunity, at least publicly, to claim their desire and their sexuality. An exception to that that I've uh, become aware of recently is a podcast called Thirst Aid Kit, um, in which its two hosts, Bim and Nicole, notice and express their appreciation for men. And some women, but mostly men, men in media or film, their looks, their physicality, but also their characters, and they fully encourage other women and femme folks to express their desire and talk openly about it. In a way, I want to say, that does not objectify their thirst objects. Acknowledging and speaking about one's desire does not have to mean acting without consent. In fact, I think speaking our desire and saying our longing out loud allows a mutuality and a reciprocity within relationship can be the beginning of a conversation like the one we hear in the Song of Songs. That the Song of Songs is in our Bible, that it was somehow canonized because, even if it's because of the way, in my mind, it ridiculously spiritualizes this sensual text, that it is in our Bible, I think, says something about God's desire about God's desire for us to embrace human desire as holy and human, sensual and sacred. We know from much of the rest of the Bible that human beings are made to be in relationship with each other. That much is clear throughout Scripture. That human life is sacred, that our relationships to others are holy. Covenanted relationships are holy. But in this text here, we specifically see the celebration of the sensual in relationship. Holy goodness in paying attention to the other. One of the reasons that I was motivated to promote a curriculum like Our Whole Lives with the youth in this congregation, and frankly, I think everybody would benefit, they have it for all ages. One of the reasons I was motivated to do that in this congregation is that so we could begin to see a kind of mutual, loving, consensual sharing as blessed. And so that young people of all genders, and middle-aged and elderly folks too, so that all people would feel empowered in their feelings of desire. So many of us have been made to feel ashamed but especially for women and femme folks so that, and so that men may hear the voices of women and femmes as important and maybe take fewer liberties. Like, and I was reminded of this in my Twitter feed, what happened to Ariana Grande when somehow in front of hundreds of people, a Christian bishop felt empowered to grope her. I Google that one. It's astonishing and disgusting. One of the things that happens in all, in To All the Boys I've Loved Before 
is that Lara Jean grows in her willingness to express her feelings and desires out loud. She's kind of forced to. But being in a relationship then grows her ability to state both her feelings and her limits. But we shouldn't have to look to pop culture for our references. We have a wonderful example of the sensual and intimate right in our Bibles. Our God-image-bearing bodies are holy. May we treat our own and others' bodies, our own and others' desires in such a way. May we give voice in holy intimacy to our desire, even or maybe especially with ourselves. May we pay attention to ourselves and others in such a way that honors and loves And may God bless this attention as sacred.